Talks at Afters, where you get access and insights from some of the best in the business. Here at Afters, we are on the land of the Gadigal and the Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation. And I would like to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the extraordinarily rich 60,000 years of continuous culture that we are so fortunate to have here in Australia. Hello, I'm Nell Greenwood, CEO of Afters. And this is the place where you can find insights from some of the leading creatives in our industry. Directors, producers, podcasters, cinematographers, sound designers, screenwriters, radio makers, and more. All talking about how to make great work in complex times. Welcome to Talks at Afters. What was interesting is the producers were based out of the UK and they don't know who I am. Um, and they said to me, Mark, why do you care? Like, why do you care about this story? What's interesting? And it took me a while to sort of answer that question. And they were like, actually, that is helpful. That, uh, that helps bring this story to life a bit more, knowing why you care. And so that added in the mix. And, you know, I all these rules that I had about how to make stories for, um, for television and for radio, a lot of them, a lot of those rules we ended up breaking because it's a different it's a fundamentally different medium and that's mark fennell talking about his approach to storytelling mark is an interviewer journalist and documentary maker who has worked at the bbc showtime and monocle he hosts the national current affairs program the feed for sbs and the long-running abc radio series download this show now mark also makes podcasts for audible last year he produced and presented the series it burns that delves into the sometimes murky world of growing and eating the world's hottest chilies, and he's just about to release his latest work, Nut Jobs. He was joined by Leanne Cartwright Bradford, Audible's country manager for Australia and New Zealand, for a conversation about all things narrative podcast. And they're speaking with after senior lecturer in radio, Tony Rasmussen. Could you just tell us a little bit about Audible? And, you know, it's very well known for producing audio books, but um, it's also getting into podcasting lately. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Tony. Look, Audible launched in the US a bit over 20 years ago, and uh, it launched in Australia in 2014. And as you said, we were very much uh, all about audio books at the beginning. Uh, we were a retailer, and then we were publishing our own audio books. Um, but more recently, we've moved into creating podcasts under our Audible Originals brand. Um, in 2018, we launched um, our first original content slate. I think we had about eight titles at that point. And now we've got uh, between 40 and 50 um, in various stages of development or, or due to launch. So we've really ramped up in this space. And we really see the future of Audible as being uh, firmly cemented in the uh, original content that you can't get anywhere else. So, you know, it's really important to us that we're kind of focusing on that and growing that as we move through 2020. And what's the, the range of your offering at the moment? What sort of diversity have you got within that group of, say, 40 or 50 different podcasts on, on offer at the moment? Honestly, the range of content reflects um, the range of our listeners' taste. So it's very varied. Um, for us, factual content performs really well. And that's sort of your, uh, your self-development, your wellness, your true crime, um, feel-good entertainment um, and sort of new approaches to um, history, science. Those are the kind of things that perform really well, but also, you know, fiction. So um, mystery thrillers, sci-fi, fantasy really do well for us as well. But we're not, we're not limited by genres. So we're kind of excited about how we um, create new genres and define new genres. And when I think about that, I think about something like, you know, Esther Perel's Where Should We Begin, where it's both... Um, reality and self-improvement and it's really a different approach um, and even in Mark's work you know it's, it's not strictly bound by genre so we're kind of interested in exploring that space with creators and working with them to define it. And is Audible actually a production house? Do you have the facilities to uh, make the programs or or do you actually buy in pre-produced material and then brand it as Audible content? We work with creators, so we have Audible Studios, which is our in-house production house, and so we produce things like um, Second Skin by Christian White or, or Zero Day Code by John Birmingham. But we also work with outside publishing partners, producers, and 
production companies to create and produce original content. And, and, and the work that Mark did with us and with Seven Digital to produce It Burns or, or um, Nut Jobs with um, something else uh, are examples of that. So we work in a, a range of ways, both with our outsource partners, but also internally with our own production studios. Mm. And can creators come to you with ideas or do you go out looking for people that you know would be good to work with? We do both. We look at ideas in various stages of development. So it could be an early story treatment or it could be a, a you know, almost ready to go podcast. So what, what is most important to us is, is not the stage it is or, or how we produce it, but the quality of the production and um, whether it, it's the right kind of story for us. It's that premium kind of story that we really want to promote. And uh, all your podcast offerings like self-contained stories in themselves or do you have open-ended podcasts that are sort of weekly or every two weeks or monthly installments but they just keep rolling on and on? We tend to look more for a, a, a strong narrative arc throughout the, the content of the podcast so we don't tend to do a lot of episodic pieces but we have um, revisited certain um, ideas like You Can't Do That on Television which was with uh, Shelley Horton. We saw that that was such great content, we made a second version or we're making a second version. And of course, with Mark, we started out with It Burns and of course, he's got lots of great ideas. So we've, we've come back to him yet again. <laughs> well, maybe that's a good point to bring Mark in. We might come back <laughs> more about the process um, a little bit later as well with you, Leanne. But um, Mark, obviously we've been mentioning It Burns quite a bit. It has been out a little while, but can you just take us through a little bit about what It Burns is actually about? Yes, so It Burns is a, is a five-part podcast series I made for Audible that came out uh, April last year, and it was a very strange <laughs> idea. Um, it turns out Australia, the UK and the US have been at war for the last several years, and it was a war for the Guinness World Record of who could breed the world's hottest chilli. And I had sort of been aware of it because my TV show, The Feed, had done a, a story on it uh, ages ago, but then I, um, I started emailing all the relevant bits and characters in it. And I realized that actually there was a really wonderful story there about the scandal plagued race to breathe the world's hottest chili. And there was accusations of cheating and death threats and tampered results. And I was just like, there is so much drama here. I should make a podcast. And uh, the way it came about was, um, I think I was the very first Audible original, as Leanne can correct me if I'm wrong on that, but for Australia anyway. Um, and it was a really interesting project where I was basically working over across three different countries. So the UK, we had a production company, as Leanne mentioned, in uh, in London called Seven Digital. I was obviously Australian, and then a large chunk of the story took place in, in America. And it was a really interesting and expansive project that I didn't realise would become as big as it did. And the, the end piece ended up being nominated for a bunch of awards, it did quite well in the US, much to my total surprise. And I think for me, what was interesting about it is um, on the one hand, you've got these very larger than life characters fighting over something that is stunningly low stakes. But what sort of emerged is that each of these characters had really quite damaged personal lives. And uh, it became an interesting study in pain and how people use physical and emotional pain to kind of reshape themselves, push themselves forward. And I think that was probably the thing that I think cut through most for just, you know, based on reading, um, audience reviews of it, which I have had to stop doing because it is not good for my mental health. But it was, uh, it became a really interesting study in, in pain and why people fixate on certain things. And so that was, that was the series uh, in, in a nutshell, pun unintended. Um, yeah. And so when that, that happened, we sort of started looking around at other stories that were in that space that had that, that energy to it. And that's where we came across Nut Jobs, which we'll talk about later. Sorry, it's an occupational hazard. I, I talk. I'll stop now. And you also uncovered this amazing world on YouTube where people compete to eat chili mm. and put themselves through pain in a public sphere. Yeah, the, there was an additional thread to it that became quite interesting, which was that people would, as you say, they would produce reams and reams and reams of video content of them eating the world's that were vying for the title of the world's hottest chili. And I sort of sat down there and I watched a few of them and I just, you know, the first question that pops through your head is why? Like, what does that give them? And 
it, it would also turn out some of those characters were really loud proponents and antagonists within this debate for who really deserved the Guinness World Record for the hottest chili. And they became really important characters in the series because they were the ones that were stoking the flames of this international debate. And the more time I spent with a few of these characters, the more I realised that they helped really further that theme about pain and, and what was going on underneath the surface. And some of their some of their stories were actually quite heartbreaking. And so the idea was to kind of thread together this, this thing where it was like, it's, it, on the one hand, it, it's quite trivial, but actually what it reveals about the people that we meet is actually quite dark and in some cases quite tragic. Yeah, that's what I really liked about it, the multi-layered nature of it and um, the different worlds in which you, you venture into. Also, I think you said that, you know, watching those YouTubes can become quite addictive. Just as part of my research, I looked one or two up and um, they are quite extraordinary. I think um, I watched one that was a competition in Britain and people in Britain are mad about eating chilies. And (laughs) so there was a table with uh, six or seven people sitting there and what you don't realise is they start with mild chilli. So they've already got a burning sensation in their mouth and then they just add and add and add and mm. add. And so they, they get thousands and thousands of times stronger each time, yet they've already got this background in their mouth that must be killing them. Yeah, and I always knew right from when the, we sort of first started researching, I always knew that I wanted to start the series smack bang in the middle of one of those competitions and actually as it turns out that was one of the last things we recorded uh, when I was in the US in Arizona and it was just after the tail end of a what what had begun as a hurricane by now was sort of like a dwindling tropical storm was passing over the state and it's just you have when you make series like this you just have so many out-of-body experiences and I remember standing in the middle of this field as a tropical storm was passing over our head everybody else was battening down the hatches but these five competitive chili eaters were going ahead in blustering white rain eating the world's hottest chilies and I'm sitting there there's actually footage of this because we sent a camera to record it for for publicity it's footage of me with a microphone rain everywhere and these people just keeling over in pain and you just have this again you just have this moment of like what is going on why is this so important that you would brave a a tail end of a hurricane and then to put yourself through enormous amounts of pain for this like why yeah so it was a really interesting and slightly bewildering experience we are taking questions if people would like to put them through on facebook and one has come through it's uh it says i think it's interesting that mark was surprised by the success of the podcast what was his motivation for working on it burns when he wasn't expecting the engagement that it ultimately received that's a very good question. Thank you. Um, so I have spent a long time working in television and radio and I had been wanting to make narrative podcasts and I'd been wanting to do something that was more, I've done plenty of interviews and I've done sort of, you know, 15 half an hour stories for the television, primarily for SBS. And I'd wanted to do something that was longer and I could, and I could find to thread together storytelling skills, interviewing skills, and, and also have a wider palette to look at themes which is actually something you tend not to be able to do that much in 15-minute TV stories. And I think it started with a little bit of an obsession. I just started emailing people and, and the, the key characters. And, and I, you do this thing sometimes where you work on longer stories and documentaries. It's like you just, have, you just get a little bit obsessed. I think if you start getting a bit obsessed, then you sort of know you're onto something. And at that point, Audible weren't on the picture, actually. So they... I have. I just found these characters and I just sort of laid them out. I literally wrote out the story in prose, how I thought it was going to go. And I wrote it out and it was like a five page treatment pretty much. And I, or I, at that point, I guess it read like a, a short story. And weirdly, Audible and Audiocraft were inviting creators to, to submit ideas. And I've got wind of it. And I sort of, I hadn't really known what to do with this story. I was like, am I going to do it as a TV documentary? Am I going to, and I sort of, I took it and looked at it and went, well, let's give it a shot. Let's see if this is the place. And I must say it was an amazing experience because I think I've never gone faster from, hey, I have an idea to here, get on a plane and go make idea. I don't think I've ever had that experience happen faster in anything I've ever done. And there was a few really big learning curves in it. One, which is how 
personal and vulnerable do you want to be as a creator in, in that story? And one thing that people either love or hate, I guess, about It Burns is that there is a big component of me in there, my story, which wasn't necessarily, that was never in the initial treatment. But when the producers came on, what was interesting is the producers were based out of the UK and they don't know who I am. Um, and they said to me, Mark, why do you care? Like, why do you care about this story? What's interesting? And it took me a while to sort of answer that question. And they were like, actually, that is helpful. That, that, that helps bring this story to life a bit more, knowing why you care. And so that added in the mix. And, you know, I, all these rules that I had about how to make stories from, for television and for radio, a lot of them, a lot of those rules we ended up breaking because it's a different, it's a fundamentally different medium. It's more intimate. You are asking for hours and hours and hours of somebody's time. I, I like to think of it like a tapestry. I think you have to give a little bit more to the audience in order to make it work or both of yourself and, and also to take them somewhere that they don't expect to go, I think is a really important part of it. And I sort of fell in love with the opportunity of that, I guess. I fell in love with where the story could take people and the fact that it could be very dark and it could be very funny and it could be very trivial and it could be very tragic all at the same time. I was like, it's a very unique Petri dish to be playing in. I don't know why you would be playing in a Petri dish. Anyway, I, I knew quite early on that the mixture of emotions that we were giving people felt like they were quite... Um, it was an interesting cocktail. I think what surprised me is that people responded to it. And I, I think what surprised me most is that Americans seem to respond to it. And obviously they have no idea who I am. I'm not a known quantity there, but it's been super interesting. Like, uh, you know, I'll wake up and I'll occasionally get emails from Wendy in Michigan and Mark in Missouri. And so, and I think that that really does speak, I think, to the power of Audible to push that content to people in those markets. You don't get that if you're in the open ecosystem over, over the podcast land. I think that's something that I have found particularly powerful about Audible, their ability to know their audience um, and to push it uh, accordingly into those markets is really remarkable. And it's great that you made that point about why do I care about this story? We might come back and talk a bit about the process mm. of storytelling for you. But Leanne, um, it does beg the question, and we had a question come in, a couple of questions come in about the types of stories that Audible is actually looking for. Um, one question was, you know, what are the right kinds of stories? What are you looking for? And also the process to approach Audible with ideas. Do you have, and Mark mentioned, you know, there possibly was a little bit of a call out for ideas at one point when he was writing, um, writing up his draft ideas. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, the types of stories that work well for Audible, um, because we do kind of know our, our customers and know our listeners, as Marcus said, is um, stories that really are authentic, that work the best in audio. So it's that intimacy and that um, the candidness that you get from people um, when they don't have a camera in their face, when they're just talking to you. Um, so stories that really make the most of audio is what we're looking for. So we often ask ourselves when we're commissioning a title, why is this best in audio? What is great about this in audio? And, and you know, for Mark's story, it was both his personal vulnerability, it was actually hearing people eating the chilli actually could be more emotive and more powerful sometimes and, and hearing their reactions and, and talking to them and getting to them to be really candid. Um, in a way that they might not with a camera in front of them. So I think how is this best in audio is that one of the really core stories that we want to answer, our questions we want to answer. Um, we want to look at stories that haven't been told before in the same way. So we're constantly saying, why are we telling this story? Why are we telling it now? What fresh voice or perspective or angle can we bring to this to make it unique? So that is really what we're looking for. We're looking for something that is going to be a really premium audio experience, but it, that is told in a way that it's not being told elsewhere. Are there points throughout the year, for instance, where you do make public calls for ideas? We do. We work with, um, you know, we did a, a call out, which is what Mark responded to, but also we work with some screen agencies and uh, documentary agencies. So we've worked with um, SA Film Corp, um, Screen Queensland with some pieces. We did a call out with Doc Edge in New Zealand and um, the Australian International Documentary Conference. AIDC. So we do do call-outs at, at certain points in the time um, and we also, you know, we're also constantly looking across the landscape to see who's doing interesting things across all spaces, not just audio, and which creators do we think could, could make something really unique and interesting with us. And being in the Australian-New Zealand arm, are you specifically looking 
for Australian stories or stories that have their genesis in Australia but will have a global appeal? Yes. Um, I think, you know, our listeners are who we make content for. So we we know that they want to hear Australian stories. They want to hear their experiences um, represented. They want to hear their accents um, in audio. But great content, as as um, It Burns has proved, travels. Great content doesn't matter where it comes from. So we know that if, if we invest locally and make that content here, we know that we can take it to audible listeners all over the world. And and to Mark's point about being surprised about the success of It Burns, um, we weren't, and that's why we promoted it really heavily in the US and the UK. I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's I guess that's the great part of the company in that it's got that reach into yeah. all sorts of markets, which is fantastic. Um, Mark, just getting back to making the content, mm. when you are bringing your script and your ideas to the printed page and getting uh, assembling your thoughts on something do you think visually it, because it is audio in the end and but do you think in a visual way or uh, how do you, how do you come that's really interesting because i think so one of the first things that happened when i wrote before um audible came on board i i wrote it down and um one of the first things that happened when sort of a audible approached me was a few few of my friends went but it's so visual. Like you want to see these people eat, eat these chillers. You want to see the pain there is. And I actually took that as a challenge because I think audio is, and I, and I can speak from experience here because I've been making television for, you know, 18 years. It's like audio is incredibly visual. It's just mm-hmm. the visual you create in somebody's mind. And it's a different skill set. It's a more, and it, and it creates all kinds of opportunities to be playful. I remember, one of the first things I wrote and it was in the original pitch and it's in the series is, is how we open. I think it's like episode two, which is with the sound of droplets of water. And I wanted to say this, you know, these droplets of water, this is how you measure heat. This is how you measure heat in chilies because the original scale of chilies is how many droplets of water you would need to put on your mouth before you no longer felt heat. And that's where the Scoville scale of, of, of chilies comes from. And so it was, it creates all kinds of wonderful opportunities to create images in people's minds. And so, you know, when people say, oh, it's, it's visual, you should do it visually. Like, no, no, no. Like you can be incredibly creative with the images you build in people's mind. That's the art form. That's what you're supposed to do. Build, like, you know, craft an, an imaginary place between people's earbuds. Um, and I find that super, super, super satisfying and creative to, to play in that space. And I think, you know, increasingly what I'm finding now is that I think podcasts and audibles, uh, audio storytelling, because people consume it in a fundamentally different way to the way they consume radio and the way they consume television, you have opportunities to be, I hate to use the term esoteric because it makes it sound like it's boring, but you, you can be a little bit more magical with how you build an um, a space in people's minds where ideas and characters and, and a place coexist. Um, the new series that's coming out next week, Nut Jobs, it all takes place in, in one valley in the US. And um, what was really important to me was that we wanted to sketch uh, through this one particular crime, we wanted to sketch a, a really clear sense of place and the geography of the place, but also what matters to the people that live in that place. And that's something we thread through eight episodes. And so, you know, there was right from the beginning, it's like, I want sort of almost like musical light motifs that, that remind us when we're, when we're in the middle of a crime or when um, somebody's about to become a victim. And, and, and you, if you listen to it closely, you can actually hear all of that threaded through the series. And it's really intentional about when, when are you flagging to the audience that somebody is about to have something terrible happen to them? Or when are you flagging that we're in the middle of a crime? And I think this, it's, I find it enormously exciting to work in that space because it's, it's, it's all magic to me. <laughs> and I think, um, and also you're building it out of real people and real characters and real crimes and real things that happened. And it's, it's a phenomenal challenge to make all those things thread together, but it's also a lot of fun. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, and we can do it a hell of a lot faster than you can do in other mediums too. Yeah. I guess this, you know, the whole theater of the mind thing, you don't need to have lighting and sets and actors and you've just. My producers are so sick of me saying theater of the mind. (laughs) 
so sick of it. And I don't think they'd heard the term until I came on board. And they're like, what, what, what are you talking about? They're from the mind. I'm like, <laughs> anyway. Also, this is a very, you know, we talk about sort of short form documentary making and long form pieces. This is like very long form. And we have a question here that relates to this. Um, it's around about what did you learn about narrative structure in moving to this sort of episodic storytelling? Oh, so much. So, so, so much. Like, and it's a constant because, so It Burns was five episodes and Nut Jobs is eight. And that creates all kinds of, um, terror is not the right word, but it's, mm-hmm. it's not far off because it's like, it's constantly an exercise in, am I holding the audience? Like, because I, I hate, like as a huge podcast listener, like I hate my time being wasted. So my, my constant terror is like, am I holding their attention? And every time we introduce something new, is this pulling the audience through? Is this pulling the audience through? And a big part of knowing whether that's working is um, if you can remove things. So I'm a big believer in dropping the audience in the middle of a place and then gradually pulling back to reveal what's happened. And so like a good example of that is I think how we start It Burns. Um, which literally starts with me in the middle of a hurricane. And then there's, we gradually give you bits and pieces of information about where we are, which by the way, is another thing you can do really easily in audio, which is create a sense of mystery about where you are, because you don't have a wide shot. You have to build a sense of place with sound character narration. Like, so that makes it very easy to turn every new setting into a mystery. And that's a great tool to play with. And it gives you a lot of room to move in terms of building intrigue, creating curiosity gaps as to where are we, what's happening. What we do at the beginning of nut jobs is I drop you in the middle of a heist. And I knew that's what we wanted to do. And, I, and I'd be interesting to see how people respond to it. But it, I knew from the, the, the moment we sort of started researching it, I wanted to start you in a heist but not give you all the information about what was happening. I wanted this sort of kinetic feeling like you're sort of in this Ocean's Eleven's sort of style moment. But then at a certain point, reveal that the thing that's being stolen is $10 million worth of nuts. Because I knew that was a turning point that would sort of work. But when you're doing that in practice, the questions you find yourself asking are, am I giving the audience enough information for it to be intriguing or am I just confusing them for the sake of confusing them and that's bad and you don't want to lose people? Or am I giving them so much that I'm limiting dramatic potential later of a reveal? And I think, you know, when you do anything that involves a mystery or a crime, um, you're constantly asking yourself the question of like, when is the right moment to reveal? When is the right moment to tease? When is the right moment to, you have all the material, like you know this, because that's the other thing about Audible, you're delivering it in one go. It's, it's, it's novelistic, it's an arc, right? So you have all the material, you know what you have. The question is when to reveal and when does it make sense to reveal and when is it going to help draw an audience in and when are you just being a dickhead and hold, withholding for the sake of it and that's not, that's mm-hmm. not fun. But I think, you know, those are the sorts of questions you find yourself asking and it's, it's a huge learning curve and I think, to be honest with you, I don't want people listening to this thinking you have to have all this stuff worked out from the get-go. Because really, a lot of those questions you cannot answer until you have the tape, until you have the material. And it's and you're in that process of whittling it down and rearranging it until it makes a sort of narrative sense. So I don't want people to feel like if they're listening to this, they need to know where all their, you know, you know the, the turning point has to be on page five and then, you know, it has to be on page 11. It doesn't actually work that way. For me anyway, like we have a very iterative process where we did development um, through Audible on Nutjobs in particular. And, you, you know, we had a very clear sort of, I think, like a 20-page document where we knew what we intended to do with each episode. Then, of course, you get out there and then, you know, suddenly strange things happen where pretty much episode two of Nut Jobs, none of that featured in the original uh, document because there's all stuff that just happened. They, they were like, come out on a ride along with a bunch of assault weapons in the middle of a nut orchard. And you're like, yes, I will do that. That sounds like it will be good podcast audio. But it wasn't there. And so what you have to have is an arc where you know vaguely what you're going to get, but then all these other things come in and then you, you know, fly back into the country and you're looking at these hours and hours of audio and you're like, all right, that's what I thought it was going to be. This is what we actually got. And there's some things we got that we didn't think we'd get and some things that we didn't get that I really wanted. And it changes everything. And then you have to do this process of rearranging where it sits and then threading it together. Like what particular encounter furthers the theme? What particular encounter furthers a character? What particular encounter 
is giving away too much and we should either push it later or push elements of it forward and, and then shift other bits later. Because at the end of the day, I want, there's a whole bunch of ideas that I want people to walk away with at the end of it, but it's the job of a, you know, any documentary maker or any, um, any sort of creative storyteller is like, it is my job to make sure that you are so hooked that you follow this thing through, that you will finish it, right? Mm. Um, and I think that means that you have to be very creative with how you choose to reveal and when you choose to reveal and the theatre of the mind sort of stuff that goes into it. Yeah. It'd be interesting to hear nut jobs. Um, and obviously you are, you are there because you are the storyteller as well. So you're, you're injecting yourself as much into nut jobs as you did in It Burns? <laughs> uh, not, no, it's, um, It Burns had a big personal thread. And I, I think you've always got to be very careful with personal threads as to when do you feel like you're, you're sort of just confecting personal, a personal narrative. And I didn't, and it took me a while to work out what the, what was an appropriate version of that for nut jobs. And there is, obviously there's me and there's my sense of humor and there's my sort of interviewing and curiosity through there. Mm. Um, in terms of what it means to me, um, it actually, I didn't realize until I got back what that thread was going to be. And so there is a, there is me as a human being and there is something that connects it back to me personally that runs throughout the series. Uh, it's not it's not quite as much as, as it burns because in, in part because I think the the core narrative of nut jobs is it or is frankly like dense and interesting enough that it doesn't super need it but there is some stuff particularly towards the middle and the end where you sort of start to see the impact on me as a as a as a storyteller kind of runs through it but you also have to be careful about stuff that you're not that it doesn't become self indulgent and I. The personal component of it burns, I, I tend to think is like the most divisive part of it. Like some people really liked it and found it really, the vulnerability really amazing. And some people just like, no, I don't really care about this guy. You know, it's been, a, it's a learning experience. Like how much of yourself do you want to share? How much, how vulnerable do you want to be? And when does it just like boring for people that aren't you? And I don't have a good answer to that. It's like a work it out as you go sort of situation. Well, I guess um, one thing about it burns is how much pain are you going to put yourself in as well? Uh, so it might lead in nicely to the little extract we've got here. You might want to set it up for us. It's up in, um, it's actually the Australian leg of the story where um, the people who hold the record for the hottest chili just recently lost it, I think. And you go up to yeah. Morissette. I never knew there were big chili growers up on the central coast of uh, New South Wales uh, to yes. talk to two brothers, is it? These two lovely Dutch brothers that have been living in Australia for a couple of decades and they, uh, they breed very, very, very hot chilies. And uh, up until a certain point, as you say, they did have the world record and then it was cruelly stolen, taken, reclaimed. You have to listen to it and, and realise for yourself uh, yep. by somebody else. But they're, they're super playful and they love feeding unnamed chilies to whoever comes to visit them, particularly if journos come to visit them. I was like, yeah, great, it'd be, it's fine, it'd be fun, it'd be awesome. And so they shoved, um, they got me to test some things. And um, let's just say I was ill-prepared for the effects. And there is a slight language warning here, but we'll <laughs> have a little bit of a listen. If we are going to go on this journey to find what is truly the hottest chilli in the world, there's one more question we need to ask. Just how much longer can I put off tasting this stuff? The answer is about 15 more seconds. This is the Carolina Reaper we're talking this about, Carolina right? Carolina Reaper, yep, yep. So this, is, this is a paste made from what is currently and controversially the hottest chilli in the world. Except the paste is actually a much more concentrated version of the raw chilli, which I did not know when this was happening. I should say that as you look inside the jar, it's bright red. It's angry. <laughs> All right, let's do this. Ooh, okay. Okie doke. So, it's um, it's got a citrusy hit to it at the top. Can I just say, fuck. Inside my body right now, my chest has tightened up. My mouth is on fire. My throat is on fire. Actually, you know what? Everything. Everything is on fire right now. That is... What is that? What the fuck is that? Exactly right. That's the capsaicin in there. And if you get that stuck in your throat, you get a situation I had. I had to drink like two litres of milk to wash it through my throat. Jesus Christ. I'm actually going to stand up on the vain hope that gravity is going to do me some favours. Spoiler alert, it doesn't. 
There's no rush. There's no rush. We're here until five o'clock this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> I've got from now until business hours to not die. Good to know. <laughs> well, it's Tuesday pickup day. We can leave you at the front of the street, mate. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, okay. What am I what am I committing to next? Well, I'm just looking at a scorpion strike on steroids. That's the normal scorpion strike. Yep. Plus we added chili oils. Three million scoville units. That's correct. It's twice as hot as the Reaper paste. Holy fuck. Yes. <coughs> the pain that that guy is feeling right now, it radiates from your mouth to the furthest reaches of your body. <coughs> okay. My eyes are watering. My face is covered in sweat. My mouth is burning. My chest is heaving. <sighs> This whole thing's built on audio. I can't talk. I've got to take a photo of this. It burns. Available now only from Audible. So I haven't heard. I haven't heard that audio in a long time. <laughs> and there you have some of the production work too, with the sound of the heartbeat. Really, the speeding up of the, that little pulse sort of sound underneath. Yeah. And, um, some of the original music, which was commissioned for the episodes as well yeah it was the first time i've ever had to i've ever gotten the chance to work with a composer and i should know this from years as being a film critic but like music is a, such a powerful way of binding characters together and binding experiences together around a theme music can help kind of shift an audience into a headspace in a way that i i hadn't really appreciated until we started doing the the editing of, of of it burns it, it sort of it allowed you to sort of unify experiences and voices into a moment um, which I know sounds really obvious when you think about it, because that's what it's that's what soundtracks have done since time immemorial. But it's really it's really exciting to be able to play with that and to hear it for the first time. And you know, one of the things we did with the new series is I remember I think we commissioned music quite early because I knew because we knew some things we wanted to play with. Um, and a big thing with Nutjobs is I wanted to play with the iconography of of heist of, of heist movies, and uh, the sounds and the the sort of musical language of, of, of that. And I actually thought it was quite helpful to have that early on because it meant when I was writing the series and threading it together, I had that to, to listen to and go, this is the theme that will play through here. And this is how we will bind this moment together. The best thing I, lesson I learned about making this sort of audio is that you don't do interviews, you know, you go do scenes. You think about when you go meet a person, you're not doing an interview with them. It's part of a large narrative and it's got to have a beginning. It's got to have questions that it needs to answer. It's got to have a crescendo and it's going to end with propelling you onto the next thing or creating a curiosity gap. You're like, I don't know if I got what I needed then. What else do I need? Oh, I'm going to go to this person. You've really got to think about, you know, when you go off and talk to people, it's very easy to start falling into, particularly if you've done any kind of broadcasting before, it's really easy to think about it as something that you're doing in isolation. But what helps you immeasurably after the fact when you're threading it together is, is to really think about every encounter with every character as a scene. What is it that the Mark character in this doesn't know? What is it that he does know? What do you need to create an arc out of every time you meet somebody? Asking those questions early, having those questions in your head early before you go off and record something will make your life at a scripting stage unbelievably easier. And that as a principle works across audio, television, anything, but yeah, don't do interviews, do scenes. So this might be another question. We're getting a lot of questions coming in on the chat line, which is great. Um, this might be one for Leanne because obviously after that scene that Mark has, he, you know, he's traveled up to Morissette in New South Wales, but then we, you know, obviously get much more of the action shifts over to the United States. So obviously this series, this podcast series had a budget to do something like that, to get around the United States and also to commission music. We're getting questions around how does the, what's the, what's the typical average budget for a series and also, um, how do the fee breakdown work? How fee breakdowns work for creators? Is it a one-off fee for creators or is there some sort of incentive based on numbers of downloads and things like that? I think there's probably no typical budget because there's no typical um, creation. Everything is different and it's about what we need to deliver 
for listeners and, and what we need to achieve in, in the audio piece. So we work to think about what the outcome is and how we can deliver that in the best way. So I wouldn't say there was a typical budget. It really depends on what we're delivering. And from a fee perspective, generally we do look for one fee for the whole piece. Um, uh, and because I think the way that we think about it is we want to, we obviously want to work with creators to help promote their content and, and help them support it, but we also want to remunerate them for it. So um, we are focused on delivering that for them. And also the, I guess it's an age old thing, this, um, the paywall idea and um, people paying for podcast downloads. Um, whereas there's so much out there that's for free. How do you make your offering valuable enough to them to make them fork over some money for it? I think, I mean, we've been around for 20 years, so I think we, we've sort of proven and we know that people will pay for great content. We're not about two guys sitting in a shed talking about um, fly fishing or some sort of niche piece off the cuff. We are about really premium, well thought out, well planned, well um, created audio. And, and we're, we don't apologise for that. That's absolutely the space that we're in. So we really want to deliver that for our listeners because that's what they're used to and I think that's what they pay for. And branded content, would you ever get into that? Do you think it'll ever be a, maybe a chili company that might come in and, and support a, a series made about chilies? Look, we will always look at brand partnerships from a marketing perspective. I don't know that we would be branding content on our platform at this stage, on, on Audible at this stage. I think it's worth for people listening to this who are sort of considering getting into the space that there's now an amazing array of different platforms you can w look to work with if you want to do good audio storytelling. And I'm, I'm sort of lucky enough that I've had a chance to do two series with Audible, which is, of course, a subscription service um, in terms of how it's structured in terms of how they, they make their money. I've done some branded series and I've obviously worked for the public broadcasters and have done publicly funded things. And I think if you're watching this and you're considering your story or your content, it's worth considering which of those options makes the most sense for you. My experience with Audible is basically, if it's something novelistic that's got an arc to it, a place like Audible makes a lot of sense. If it's something much more episodic, uh, although it's worth noting, I guess Shelley's show is quite, quite episodic as well, but it's like, generally speaking, I found you've got to have a real consideration for the thing that you're working on, the thing you're passionate about, where is it going to reach its audience best and who, and who wants that kind of content? And my experience, certainly with Audible has been, if it's something that has a very clear arc, if it's basically thinking of, thinking of it like a mini series, Audible has, has made sense for it. And the, I also think it's worth pointing out that that's what Audible consumers, uh, and I can't, certainly can't speak for all Audible consumers, but I do find that Audible consumers, like looking at how they interact on Facebook and how they review things and how they interact on Goodreads as well is another thing. If they feel like they've gotten a really good arc, and this doesn't just apply to my content, it applies to, you know, the other things that I listen to on Audible, and I, I casually read what people say, they really reward you if they feel like you've taken them on a, on a great journey. But Leanne, feel free to tell me if I've just got that totally wrong. No, I think you're absolutely right. That, that through narrative arc is what we look for. And I think you're right that our, our, um, our customers are pretty passionate about stories. And if it's great, if it's a great story, you'll be rewarded with advocacy and, and lots of discussion and, and reviews um, as you have been. But I, I think that that's absolutely right. Audible customers are passionate and they love audio. I'm always really impressed with the reviews. I'll just say that, like having come up where, you know, in, particularly in TV where like the reviews you get from the audience is usually somebody saying something just mean on Twitter. I was blown away. Like honestly, just like super blown away about like how detailed audience reviews were. Like even people that didn't like it, like they gave really good consideration to the reviews. And I was like, I've never experienced that before. Like you, you don't actually get that in most other platforms. It's a really engaged listenership. And I found that really unique. Like, I've never experienced anything like that before. Well, our customers listen to, um, I think it's 22 pieces of audio on average, so 22 audiobooks or podcasts on Audible a year. So mm. they they know their stuff and they're committed and they listen to a lot. So they, um, they're, pretty, they're pretty engaged. They're, they're pretty amazing. Mark, a question again around the practicalities. Do you record everything yourself and or do you take, you're travelling light? Are you out there on your own or do you have people with you? Uh, yeah, no, I'm travelling by myself, actually. So both series, um, 
I worked with a UK production company um, and the, I worked with Seven Digital on it Burns and um, the EP um, who I got on really well with, he moved to a different company and I sort of followed him to something else. And um, both series, uh, I was obviously here, the production houses were in London and then I, the narrative in my EP are in the US and of course it's commissioned by Audible Australia. So it's already got a, like a weird United Colours of Benetton vibe to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I, when we do sort of the initial development, um, that happens mostly with me and then with, with Tom on the second series, I am in the US by myself um, and I use uh, a Zoom recorder and I do all the out and about interviews on a Sennheiser shotgun mic uh, and I do all the voiceover on a different mic, which is a, um, a, a Neumann mic. And I just like I like the the fact that the voiceover and the um, field audio sound very slightly different. I think it's a really useful way of just creating a little bit of separation between the sound. Um, that's me being a nerd sort of stuff. Um, so that I'm I'm out in the field by myself pretty much. One thing we do quite a fair bit of is because my time on the ground is a little bit limited and there's always stuff that comes up beforehand or afterwards. We did do a lot of tape syncs. So what I mean by tape syncs is there's, um, there's often talent in other countries that are part of the story, but I'm not, you know, it would be ridiculous to fly me to Spain for one interview, right? So what we'll do is we'll often sit me in front of a microphone in whatever country I'm in and then sit uh, a microphone in front of talent in another country for, for that stuff. It's not my preferred way of doing it because I'm really big on creating a sense of place, like going to a place, the audio of getting you there and getting you out again is from a narrative standpoint, really necessary for lots of people. But you know, there's, there's stuff that you don't realize you need until after the fact. So, and I was particularly lucky in It Burns because a lot of the UK characters, we could actually bring them into the UK studios or we could send a, a producer out to them and we could sort of replicate that. But in terms of the majority of it, it is me um, out there by myself. And in terms of the, the voiceover, you know, the, look, I don't know how other people do it, but I feel like both times, like you, I re-record the episode narration 50 times, like, and, and you'll, you'll record, you'll do one full record and then, you know, the producers and I will listen to it and we'll go, well, that's too long. That's boring. We need to shrink that down. We need to expand that out. That makes no sense. Mark, you said that, right? So it's like collage or, or sculpture. You're refining, reshaping, refining, reshaping, smoothing it out. And you can do that in audio. You can. You don't, it's not like there was one time Mark went into studio and did the voiceover for all eight episodes and it was done. Like, I don't, for me, that's just not how it works. So it's only when you hear something, you go, ah, that whole thing is just going on for too long and it's too boring. Or, you know, we need, we need to remind you of a piece of information before we get into that. We need to remind you what we don't know. So then when you hear the piece of information that, that's key in that interview, you're reminded of why it's important. So you're constantly, for me, I'm constantly going in and, re, you know, revoicing. And luck, And one of the weird advantages to the, you know, the Colours of Benetton way of working is that when we're in post, it also means that towards the pointy end, it's being worked on um, almost 24 hours in the loop. So the, there's, I'll be working on an Australian time. Tom will be, Tom will listen to edits in, in the U S and then Emerald will work on it in the UK. And we did sound mixing in Australia. Um, that was one thing I wanted to change about, um, it burns the nut jobs. Um, I really wanted to be able, cause I'm a micromanager. <laughs> I really wanted to be able to sit with the sound designer and, and kind of, you know, look at the waveform and, you know, move bits and pieces here which was a great plan right up until coronavirus happened. <laughs> so the sound mixing did happen in Australia and I'm really glad that we could do that, but I still ended up having to do it remotely. Um, you know, if we do another series, I would like to actually be in the room when that happens. Um, but there are advantages to not being in the room because it means every time a, a mix happens or an edit happens, you are literally consuming it like a listener does. And it, that sometimes there's value in that that you, you don't get stuck looking at waveform on a screen. You actually have to go for a walk and listen to it as a listener does. And, um, and there is value, I think, to that. Um, I think it's helpful to not to maybe take the pressure off that it's like it doesn't necessarily have to be, at least for the sort of stuff I make, it doesn't have to be a set, you know, you'd record it once and it's, it's done. And we were very lucky um, with Monique Keller, our, um, our AP 
at Audible, you know, she, we brought her on at like very key stages to listen to stuff when they were in rough edits and there were script stages. And she said, yeah, so, you know, I think that thing works there, but I have a feeling that that might not work there. So we sort of knew her thinking as we went along as well, which was quite helpful. And it meant that at every stage, like there were no surprise, when an edit arrived or a mix arrived, it wasn't like it was filled with surprises and she was hearing it the first time being like, the fuck did these people do? It wasn't that. You know, it's really important when you have a commissioner that there's clarity around what you set out to get and so that when they hear each stage it's not like this gigantic surprise and if you feel like something's you really didn't get something or you really had to recreate something to make it work flag it early like i just i just like i just don't believe in like making a commissioner listen to something for the first time and for it to be a total shock to their system <laughs> like that's it never ends as well and that that is a principle that works across any medium. I just don't feel like it ever plays well for anybody. Mm. If you've got a commissioning editor that liked your thing enough in the first place, bring them along for the process and make sure that they, they are as creatively. Um, and, and you're like, and Monique will tell you, I'm like, what do you think about this? Does this work? Does this not work? And to the point she's like, it's fine. Just relax, Mark. Yeah. I was very lucky in the sense that Ben on the first series and Monique on the, on the second series, you know, they're really good collaborators and, you know, particularly on it burns like, we did lots of work with Ben on It Burns and Ben, Ben came, you know, Ben came back with heaps and heaps and heaps of notes. And I remember looking at it being like, Oh, did we, did we screw this up? And no, the reality was Ben knows storytelling. Ben <laughs> edited the good weekend. Like Ben knows storytelling. And he, we were sitting there going, and he worked with us. And it was a really, you know, I like the process of, I've, I've written a few books and I, I learned quite early on that, um, I much prefer rewriting than I prefer than I like writing. Mm. I much prefer the opportunity to take the thing that I made and gradually make it less shit. <laughs> like, I really enjoy that process. Um, and I think that's how I like to think about making these series. It's like every time you open up that Google document of the script, every time you look, you flick open Pro Tools, that is another opportunity to make it less shit. And that, that is a good mental headspace to be in when you're crafting anything. Thank you. I'm swearing way more than you thought I would in this conversation. We are coming towards the end of our time. And Leanne, just one last question for you. People listening are very interested in budgets and how much do you pay. I'm not going to revisit that in this small time we've, we've got left. But if people have an idea and they're, they're burning to find, find someone to listen to it and maybe support it. How can they come to you at, at Audible and, and have it heard or have it looked at? Look, we have, um, we have um, time call outs at different times of the year when we will um, ask for people to support, to, to give us their kind of um, pictures and to give us their work. Um, and, and that's probably the best time for us to focus on that and, and really hear them and give them the time that they need. Great. Well, Leanne and Mark, thank you very much for your time today. It's been a real insight into how Audible works, but also how Mark as a creator works with you and how he creates what he does. He's given us a lot of great insights into the process, which I think will be really, really helpful for people. So thank you for joining us on Talks at Afters. You've been listening to Talks at Afters, an Australian film, television and radio school podcast. Please subscribe for more episodes. For show notes and other resources, head to afters.edu.au. That's afters.edu.au.